Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about switchgrass. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul is my co-host, David Will. David, how is it going? Doing all right. I uh, actually was not in Istanbul last week and will not be next week, but this uh, brief interlude is is always wonderful for me to come back to this great country. Well, I mean to say that you're always David Wheel on the line from Istanbul. Well, and, you know, due to my hectic uh, traveling schedule, I, you know, I missed last week. So I apologize very much to our loyal viewer for that. There was some last minute scheduling issues we had with this insofar as we hadn't, um, we didn't realize it was going to be an issue until it was. And so we didn't have time to pre-record anything for you. Um, which we almost, we very nearly did, purely by coincidence, the previous week when we had a whole rant about uh, Trump's pardon of uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And uh, we, di- we didn't do that. It was my fault. I really just needed to run after the podcast. Um, but uh, we, we hope that you had a nice uh, three-day weekend without our soothing voices. <laughs> yeah. So, but we're back. We're back now. Uh, and... Uh, I, if I sound a little strange to you, it could be either because I'm starting to come down with a sore throat or the fact that I have a fancy new podcasting microphone that I have no idea how to use. So I could be sounding better. I could be sounding worse. I have absolutely no idea what this is going to come out like. This is my test run for this microphone, and it'll probably be four or five episodes before I know that there's some button I was supposed to press somewhere to make it sound good. Uh, so, uh, with that said, let's uh, start to talk about this week's podcast. When we left off, we were talking about our cultural heresies with liberalism, specifically more cultural ones. And uh, culture being what it is, in the two weeks since, I've come up with so many more things I would rail about on the cultural side. Um, but we said the next part was going to be about uh, policies we disagree with. So that's what we're going to do. David. Give us a start. What is a policy disagreement you have that you think counts as a heresy? Well, um, when we first started this, uh, you and I talked about how we, as a, as a generational matter, became alienated from what we understood to be the right. And it was um, basically being one of the major things that we both recall from our youths was being, um, you know, repulsed by the hypocrisy and, and lack of sense on the issue of respect for homosexual Americans. Um, for me, going back to that similar period, a matter of policy being alienated from the left was, for me, the inability of so many people I otherwise respected to, as far as I could, you know, as far as I would say it, to think clearly and separate their positions on the invasion of Iraq from the prosecution of the war in Iraq, or more accurately to say the occupation of Iraq. And to me, it was it just didn't make sense how people on the left 
took this clear-eyed position of, I mean, many people failed, many politicians, you know, obviously, uh, you know, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, chief among them, uh, also got it wrong because they voted for the authorization of force and whatever rhetorical position they would say about, you know, I wanted to support the rhetoric of the president in, uh, you know, give him the leverage he needed to negotiate over, uh, you know, the arms inspection regime, all that stuff. You know, just put that, uh, put that sort of mealy mouth stuff aside. Um, you know, those politicians, I'm not talking about those politicians. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about certain, you know, public intellectuals opposing the invasion of Iraq which was very sensible. And then getting to the point where there were tens of thousands of American troops there where the society had been obliterated. I mean, the, the society was disintegrating because the state had been obliterated by us and deciding that that was the moment to just say, okay, we have no right to be here. We shouldn't be here. We have to get out as quickly as possible. And that will be the best outcome for everybody. To me, that was insane. I mean, it made, it made sense only from a craven political perspective that, okay, well, this is what a lot of people on the left in America want. And so that's what I'm going to repeat to them. Um, from a policy standpoint, it struck me as absurd because... Um, there are certain responsibilities that the United Nations gives occupying powers and having made the mistake of going in and taking out the government, we then assumed those responsibilities. And as a person who believes in good government, you know, we had made the mistake of assuming the responsibilities of governing that country. And I believe in government. I believe in government here. I believe in government there you know our international obligations were what they were and it struck me as um it just basically I'm, I'm articulating the uh you know the colin powell pottery barn yeah. rule. you break it we, you buy it. we broke it we bought it and it was our job to glue it back together but it is worth um, recalling for all of our listeners now who might be concerned about this after colin powell said that pottery barn was quick to point out that it has no such rule <laughs> Just another lie from the Bush administration. Just another lie from the Bush administration. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. So, so to me, that that growing realization, you know, in high school, um, you know, in high school, I was, you know, I watched with horror as the as the war drum, you know, the drums of war began to be beaten, and um, it struck me as a terrible, terrible reaction, you know, not, you know, supposedly it was, I mean, it was sold as a reaction to 9-11. And at the time, I'm not going to claim that I was particularly well informed and had all the right reasons for rejecting it. But it, it just, it struck me as a stupid, stupid mistake to turn around and invade Iraq, particularly when, you know, Osama bin Laden had not been found, all that, all that stuff, you know, the, 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 it's like, we're leaving, we just invaded Afghanistan, what are we, you know, what are we going to tell the people there? Uh, it just struck me as a terrible idea, but again, 
accepting that reality changes and accepting the, what is, you know, seeing what is in front of your face. It struck me as, as soon as American troops entered Iraq after that, the game had changed and simple, simply saying, I opposed this from the beginning was no longer an acceptable position. Um, and so that, that weighed with me and began, you know, it was basically the, the seed of a, of a long, uh, germinating transformation in me from away from sort of, um, mindlessly droning on and repeating the, the talking points from moveon.org or whatever. Oh, I remember foolishly signing up for moveon.org. <laughs> Not knowing. Well, you gotta, you gotta hear what they're saying. Those emails ten years later. It helps. I think it, it does help. One of the one of the images that I have long had, um, you know, claw, uh, cats have to scratch things in order to sharpen their claws. Oh yes. And uh, so, you know, you have to expose yourself. I like to think of this in this way: that you have to expose yourself to these annoying things in order to keep yourself sharp. I'm kind of mixing the metaphors there, but you know, in order to keep your own... like you have to be exposed to certain poisons to keep your immune system strong. Yeah, I guess so. If that's even true. I know and the princess bride corrupts that, you and but... turns you into one of them. <laughs> well, and that's the fear. That's the fear is that, um, and there's actually some interesting, uh, psychological research on this. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on it myself, but, um, I mean, we talk about conservatives and uh, some, at least some research about what it means to be a conservative and the kind of makeup of the mind that is inclined to conservatism is, um, you know, there's some evidence that there's a, a, a focus on um, reactions of disgust. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, and you know, focusing on sort of the sort of uh, filthy, clean dichotomy and being dis disgusted with things that strike you as wrong. Not just, not just to say like, Oh, that doesn't strike me as correct, but to be, you know, destroy it, burn it, kill it, get it out of here. And, um, and the problem is that again, you know, we talk about this a lot. It's one of the themes that we go back to is that you have competing values and the disgust reaction can be a, healthy one in all sorts of settings. Some things really do hurt you. And if you perceive that and react to it very strongly, then, you know, you could be protecting yourself and the people around you as opposed to being willing to, um, tolerate pathogens that, uh, that weaken you. And those pathogens could be literal, biological pathogens, or they could be, you know, dangerous ideas. Um, now I personally don't think that, I think that the mind does strengthen itself by being exposed to dangerous ideas if it is healthy enough. And the only reason our minds aren't healthy is if we are all lying to each other, you know, and, and keeping one another from having good educations. I mean, there's no, there's no reason that a mind should not be healthy enough to resist stupid, bad, dangerous ideas. Um, but of course should and, and would and could is, is one thing. And like the actual 
state of public discourse and public education in the world and in our country is obviously something else. I feel that way too on a lot of issues where people talk about, well, this is a bad cultural influence that will cause people to see this and then start thinking X, Y, and Z. My reaction is generally, well, I saw this and I knew better than to do that. You know, you saw this, you knew better than to do that. Why can't we put any onus on the people who make the choice to embrace something that is generally considered bad? Um, I don't have this example off the top of my head, but, and I don't want to diminish cultural forces as being a really relevant problem. Like, you know, people, I think part of the problem we sometimes get into, and this gets a little bit back to the cultural side of heresies, which to some extent, I was was going to say, we're sort of getting back to like the free speech, or at least I was kind of uh, tending towards the free speech issue. So we don't need to go. What I'm thinking about this is sort of what you just said about the Iraq war is also, it's a specific policy, but it's also cultural. Because people were led into that view of, well, we'll just bring them all home through cultural tribalism, essentially. It was the sense that we're not the ones who start wars for no reason. Now that this war has been started for no reason, we're just going to end it because we're the peaceful ones and they're the warmongers. And staying there is just being warmongering and trying to do all of these things for selfish reasons. And um, it it was not really a thought out policy position. And that sort of demonstrates that the cultural tribal level does tend to supersede the policy level um, to a very large extent. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, the, the tribalism thing, I mean, that's an issue that we pick up a bunch. Um, And for the purposes of this conversation, it's not, you know, it's different. It's a different matter to diagnose why masses of people come to the come to one position or another whether we think that position is is right or wrong um i totally agree with you that it's you know there's a lot more kind of group signaling and okay i'm just looking to my left and my right uh what are what is everybody else around me saying and doing you know the people i respect and like what are they you know they respect like and identify with you know what are what are they saying and then i'll just parrot that in order to show how much like them i am um, uh, you know, which uh, a huge amount of all this political stuff, I think, does derive from that. But of course, um, not all of it. And again, you, you know, you determine who you are by clawing at the ideas around you. You know, sharpening your claws on these, on this dead wood of stupid, you know, ill-considered, unexplained assumed positions that the world presents you with. And as you turn those to ribbons, you, you sharpen your claws to, to become the useful tools that they, that they must be. You almost had the, that metaphor working again. And you brought tools in. We were just talking about claws. Claws are tools. Oh, uh, poor, the poor know. little animals like who have claws. Be something, claws. I feel like a tool has to be a separate object Created by well, not created. That's by very them. anthropocentric. Of you. I well, I think even for like, well, I, I think that you know the great apes that use tools. They're not talking about using their fingers as tools or their nails. That's because they pick up twigs. When we talk about is this animal capable of using tools, we're talking about a corvid or something. 
We usually talk about them picking up a separate object, not, oh, look, this Corvid was so, you know, it used it, it used its beak as a tool. We never say that. I think I think that's your human opposable thumb privilege speaking. And if, you know. Dude, if Corvids cat, do it. A cat's if Corvids only tools can do it, why can't canines do it? A cat's only claws are its tools. And I, think, I don't think we should be so disrespectful of, of their tool. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, I understand the distinction you're making. Um, and let's not let's not continue with this uh, silliness for too long. That's but. probably something we should be saying in a lot more cultural agreement disagreement. <laughs> that is that if only if only more cultural problems could be solved. I mean, everyone so listening can see silly. how I just tried started to get a real disagreement going over something so incredibly silly and trivial. And if we right got on exactly, to that well, this is part minutes, of the problem. Is you and I. Yeah, Sorry, we would have really dug in on our positions, and after a few minutes, I would be so fervently looking up the definition of tool, and David would be coming up with some more abstract theoretical. I think canon. I think you would if you had if you had dug in on this, you would have been uh, exhibit A in the definition of tool. Oh, zing! Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, no, let's yeah. That I mean, no, I think I think our leadership gains a lot from the discussion we just had <laughs> because it, it demonstrates like we should i mean if we had enough listeners to do a hashtag war on twitter it could be hashtag claws are tools versus hashtag claws are not tools we would form yeah. into our tribalist sides and reason and discussion would never again enter the issue it would yeah. only be lots of sh- tribal shouting indeed and well this is part of the problem of the podcast and you know it'd be, it'd be really interesting as we I, I, we're, we're getting into it more. I think it, th- things are getting better in terms of uh, how we speak and present ideas and talk about them. It'd be interesting to start trying to get other people on here to hear different perspectives because this is part of the issue is you and I talk and it's like, you know, we really in many ways are very similar in the way we think. And so um, there is a not zero chance that we would start succumbing to the, you know, the narcissism of small differences or whatever that phrase is. Um, it's the, but Dr. Sweetly butter battle book. I think that was the name, which was one of my favorites growing up. Mm. I've had talked to a lot of people, by the way, who have never read that one. Have you heard of it? I I missed the beginning of what you said. Dr. Seuss's butter battle book. It's about, two groups of people who disagree. It's a Cold War analogy. And it's mm-hmm. about two groups of people who disagree on whether you should put your butter on the top of the bread or the bottom. And this forms them into separate groups that are ardently opposed to each other. And then one of them devises a new weapon that he can use to beat up the other side to gain an advantage. And then the other side builds a better weapon. And it's just a thing of escalation until they both yeah. um, create essentially atomic bombs and everybody right. has to go live in underground shelters while two guys with these atomic bomb-like beads just stare at each other next to a, across a wall. Um, but it's it's just about how it all started with a very minor disagreement that snowballed. Right. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, Gulliver's Travels has that too. The you know the Lilliputians yeah. were. Uh, I don't know if you knew. Well, that they were very small. <laughs> right. Um, but there were the, uh, like the big, I mean, it was the, basically exactly the same setup as people who, um, cracked their eggs on the mm-hmm. little end versus the big end to eat them soft boiled. And that was the cause of, you know, generations of war that 
um, the Lilliputians wanted to use Gulliver as their as their atomic bomb because poor you know Jonathan Swift didn't have uh, you know atomic weapons to react to in his day. Oh, I thought you were supposed so to. So his 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 image of the atomic weapon was like a really really big guy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so if we if we continue though, what? Uh, so I started us off and shared my position on Iraq, which um, pushed me basically away. And it's hard it's hard to say this because it, it effectively made me a neocon, you know, socially liberal, but accepting the need to engage in the filthy, dirty work of participating in the world and living up to our international obligations, which at times could generate the perspective, you know, the, the perception, the image that we were, you know, ruling the world as, as if we were some sort of, you know, 20th or 21st century Rome. Uh, but that appearance aside, we nevertheless had those obligations, which were both legal and moral, in my view. Um, and, you know, the inability of so many people on the left to articulate a sensible response to those obligations and their tiresome fallback to, you know, to the idea that it was like racist because, you know, white America is running, you know, brown Iraq and like, Oh, we think we have a right to, to run their country because like we're white and they're brown. And that's you know, hearing that sort of thing, which is just such a irrelevant red herring. Um, or, or just a general kind of cold war style, you know, right-wing America is you know, a fascist empire that's just trampling on the rights of smaller countries, which is just, you know, straight out of like Stalinist propaganda. Um, you know, hearing those critiques warmed over and so little that cast light on how best to fulfill these moral and legal obligations we in fact have, um, it was just deeply frustrating and, as I said, set the seed of this of this alienation. And what about you? Well, I mean, that is very similar to mine um, as regards uh, some of the more pacifist liberal positions. Um, I think I'd always been a bit more interventionist than a lot of liberals. Going back to, I mean, we're talking about, what, high school here, so who knows what I knew at all. But... Um, yeah, I had the same experience as you, where I was really frustrated with all of these people who were, who are, who, you know, they want us to get involved in humanitarian conflicts, but now we've created a humanitarian conflict, we should stay there and, and, and help fix it. Suddenly they're, I don't know, their, their zeal to oppose anything the Bush administration was doing was a little too strong. And you can That's argue actually, they got rewarded for it because in 2006, they took back the House and Senate. Right. Well, and this is another problem of, you know, my, I call this my church lady routine. You know, when I talk about being, you know, fair and logical and let's think through this, let's not do, let's not use name calling, you know, let's not use 
disingenuous arguments. Um, you know, the problem is that those disingenuous arguments often work politically. So, you know, I, I have, I have the church lady deep inside me and I, I understand that. And, uh, the contradiction at the, at the heart of the issue is that, um, you know, stoking up the heat and smoke to the detriment of casting light on the issue can be very, very effective. Yeah. Uh, of course, I want to add now that the timing for this was also where we in our grand strategy program were so immersed in neocons um, that uh, that may also have had a factor. Uh, I mean, it was sort, there was sort of a one-two punch for me, at least, in that around the same time period, I was increasingly annoyed with how liberals were handling certain things uh, about the war where it was just seemed irresponsible. Um, to score political points. And, and at that same time, I was, um, you know, going to talks by neocons um, who were explaining their thoughts on what we should do next in the war. And their thoughts were making sense. And what the liberals were doing sounded like they were just reflexive whining. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, um, yeah, there's something of a chicken and egg thing that we were, we put ourselves in a, I mean, we sought out those voices because the other voices that were, that we were, had been exposed to were not making sense. You know, the people, you know, when I was reading the paper or listening to the TV or whatever, or listening to friends talking about the war in Iraq, and they just repeated the same tired points about we should get out because we have no right to be there. Um, eventually that rang hollow. And so I, I began to seek out other voices. Um, you know, and the problem with, with those is, you know, unreconstructed neocons who were just like, yeah, what's your problem? Like, of course we're there. Of course we, you know, of course we're running the world. Who else is going to do it any better than us? You know, without any self-reflection at all, that's of course when the pendulum starts to get pushed, you know, the sort of the force of logical gravity, you know, like pulls the pendulum, pendulum back in the other direction, or at least pulled it over for me. Yeah, no, I, uh, that, that's true. And it's interesting to see which of the neocons have sort of repented, which ones have admitted they made mistakes, which ones didn't, um, and how that is sort of being used now. It's strange that the Iraq war has resurfaced as something of a cultural issue on the right now because yeah. some of the biggest never Trumpers are neocons. Right. And Trump has a very strong position in saying, you know, I mean, he, well, he, of course he wraps himself in this false narrative that he was right on the Iraq war. Um, you know, that he had opposed it, which is obviously not true. Um, but he still, wins with the play of saying, you know, you people were wrong then and you're still wrong. It is this Tucker Carlson, Max. Boone yeah, I was just action. Tucker Carlson. Right. Max where, is exactly where Tucker Carlson, what I was thinking. Exactly. Where Tucker Carlson, you know, used that weapon that Trump put on the table and said, you know, Max Boot, you've been wrong about everything. Why are you, you know, why do you think you have a, you're in a position to, pass judgment on anything, which of course, <laughs> for the purposes of that episode, it was like, all it does is cast sort of doubt on Tucker Carlson inviting him onto the show to begin with. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, 
Anyway, so to move on to talk about another issue, I believe the sharing stick is in my hands now. Um, we, uh, we talked last time about zoning, which is a cross, in a way, of being a cultural and policy issue. Um, it was poor timing on my part to come out in favor of looser zoning right before um, Hurricane Harvey devastated Houston, or well, as it was devastating Houston. I think the hurricane was hitting as we were recording the last podcast. Enough yeah. that we were talking about the risks of flooding. And switch um, Yeah, and what I had what I had meant when I was talking about zoning was the nimbiest, not in my backyard, um, view of I want uh, to not have my view outside my window obstructed. I want to have my neighborhood be a little bit more quiet so you can't build bigger apartment buildings here. You have to leave this spot empty. When, uh, I mean, I was thinking about how overzoned areas don't, um, they may, they result in unaffordable housing is part of the problem. And that's, that's bad for the people who live there, generally speaking. Um, I mean, you can have your property values kind of go up, but. Well, it's bad for vulnerable people. That's the whole point is it's, it's good for the people who have their properties values yeah. increased. Yeah. And it's bad for anybody who wants to move there. Right. Um, Houston had the separate issue where instead of building up with apartment buildings, they built out by sprawling. And that had all kinds of flood consequences, um, which are yeah. problematic. And so now I would like to take an opportunity to just uh, distinct, to qualify my comments from last time about how I wasn't referring to safety related zoning issues. If you've got something like this is too much paved over area, it will be prone to flooding. That's something that, I mean, that's exactly what zoning is for. I think what zoning is for is to keep, you know, um, the plant that produces something harmful not next to the school or the apartment buildings. You do want to have residential and commercial areas have enough of a split that you don't receive actual harms from it. Uh, and you do want to protect against flooding. What you don't want to do is um, something that's it's purely a, a grab of, I want to be better off here, and I don't care that it harms lots and lots of other people and has long-term negative consequences to my city. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, that was one of the <clears throat> few policy issues we discussed last time around. So it's, it's fair of me to bring it up, even if you bring it up in the way of basically talking about how, you know, you're not that far away from the leftist, the nominally leftist. Well, I didn't mean to say that I was that far away from the leftist. I just felt it was really necessary after Hurricane Harvey to Yeah, no, I respect, I respect that. I respect that. That being said, I think that, um, I mean, the Hurricane Harvey thing is another example of competing values where Houston, what happened there? What's going on there? Well, Hurricane Harvey was going to flood Houston whether or not there were, I mean, if Houston had zoning, it would still have flooded, right? I mean, the hurricane, the hurricane dumped so much water on the city that there is no, you know, best outcome here. There are only least bads. And so, um, I mean, I was the one who brought up this, uh, you know, ProPublica thing where it talked about X amount of, you know, paved areas and um i linked that article in the show notes to last week's episode i would, yeah, exactly. I would advise yeah. all of our listener to uh read that article because it really is devastating when you look at the date and realize this is before hurricane harvey i mean it yeah. sounds like oh, one yeah. of those like things that sounds like ago. every movie every disaster movie 
where you've got the government guys who say, oh, there's no problem. Don't worry about it. And then a disaster happens because they're not listening to the scientists. Right. Well, this is this is a bigger picture issue here, because, again, I mean, I would repeat. You know, it's like, it's like people saying, oh, if we just had a third party, then everything would be fine. You know, we just like, oh, I'm so disappointed with, you know, those people and those people. We just need something new and that would it would fix everything. No, it wouldn't. And then nothing after that, will be a fourth party. Nothing, exactly. Nothing will, nothing will ever fix everything because we, and this is where, you know, theological language, I think, does become useful because it contains, often there is a grain of truth. And in order to communicate the grain of truth, it helps to have the kind of cultural weight of something like theology behind it, which is in this context, you know, the concept of the fallen world. Like we live in this fallen world. We are broken people. Um, we're trying to, I mean, everything that we do, politically speaking, is akin to, you know, building the airplane as we fly it. Um, there will be no perfect outcome. There never will. It's impossible. We can only try to marginally improve the situation we're in. And with something like Houston, it's like, however large Houston was, like, whatever, if we go back in time and change things, you know, if Houston had only had 30,000 people in it, those 30,000 people would have, you know, had a big problem with flooding. Like their houses might not have gone com you know, completely submerged. They might've only been on like the most elevated land and there would have been no issue, but like they would have been cut off from the rest of the world. There would have been some kind of impact. And then you would not have the fourth largest city in the country. Right? Like if you go back and change things such that Houston was only that size. Um, if you had smart regulations and smart zoning and whatever else, uh, you know, the impact could have been ameliorated, but ameliorated does not mean eliminated. And um, I think, you know, I, I made a strong case for better zoning uh, for Houston and, you know, smart policies that take that accepts sort of natural realities and, um, you know, local climate and local plant cover, even all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I still believe that, but I also, you know, strongly re reject anything, any hint of utopianism and the idea, you know, the idea that if we had changed our policy, you know, if Houston had had a different like zoning that everyone would have been fine there either. Yes, that's true. And, it's only true because the city that would exist under those circumstances would be a such a vastly different city that you'd be in you'd be imposing costs basically on all the people who wouldn't have access in this alternate dimension, you know, to the cheap housing and plentiful jobs that exist in, in Houston today. Right. So you'd have a you'd have an impoverished country with less opportunity, or, you know. Uh, you'd have something more like today where vulnerable people are at risk because their city doesn't protect them by ensuring that there's like a minimum quality to the, you know, minimum quality to the, uh, you know, the sort of flood prevention standards of the neighborhoods in which they live. Um, but for the rest of the year, they have good jobs and, 
you know, store up enough, you know, have, I have opportunity to build up some kind of wealth uh, that is, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be worth it. It's not, I'm not saying it's worth the flood, but it, it is, it exists and you have to hold it against the cost of the flood. Um, so. Or alternatively, you could have a little bit better zoning out there and then allow the tall apartment buildings that would have yeah. housing. Yeah. Yeah. Or not even allow, but encourage. I mean, you could have yeah. zoning that encourages more high density apartments on better land, you know, that doesn't create the sprawl that, uh, that contributes. And again, like I, I'm just saying, like there's definitely room for better in, in terms of, uh, regulation. But there still would have been a very bad hurricane that would have had a high human uh, cost. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that gets to the bigger issue of, of course, climate change, which, you know, yeah, that's, you can talk about ameliorating, but not getting rid of it. It's the same thing with the hurricane itself. Had we taken action on climate change, we might have made, we might've had a smaller hurricane Harvey, but we still might've had a hurricane Harvey. I don't know enough about how hurricanes form to know how likely any given hurricane would be to have formed anyway. I don't know how much the butterfly flapping its wings would have an impact on a hurricane forming. Um, Yeah. In, in, you know, realistically speaking, if we had done better work on climate change, there probably still would have been, there would have been hurricanes this season because it is hurricane season. Right. Probably would have been a different hurricane a day later or something like that. Who knows? But yeah. Um, yeah. yeah anyway, that's, um, good. That's, 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 a, that's the useful connection with there too. Uh, because so many people do start saying, well, your global uh, um, climate change doesn't cause any, it can't be attributed can't be the cause of any one event. Therefore, it didn't cause this event. Therefore, we shouldn't have to do anything. And because it wouldn't completely eliminate the hurricane, then it would have been useless to do climate change. Like that's a bit of sophistry that we occasionally get exposed to in moments like this. Um, But climate change as an issue is an interesting one for looking at how the left has approached it because we mostly focus on the denialism on the right and most of the criticism of how the left has handled the issue of climate change is by people who are not acting in good faith, who simply want to say, oh, you're being too alarmist. We would believe you and listen to you if only you hadn't said such dire warnings. Um, David, do you have any thoughts on how the left has approached climate change? Because the left has been the side calling it, you know, the defining issue of our generation and our time. But we don't really stop and analyze how are we approaching this issue from a policy standpoint all that often um, because it, yeah, tends so, to be either, it tends to be people who are either or people who say yeah. either it's the biggest challenge and so we should do everything to fix it or the, you know, the people who deny that it's happening. You don't see that many. Well, I mean, there are some people who do, but nobody listens to them um, who do breakdowns of what would actually help. Yeah. Well, I mean, the climate change issue would definitely be you know, the opposite sort of, of the, of the episode topic we're doing today. Um, you know, a policy issue that, um, you know, if you care about it at all, you know, the probability, you know, the sort of probability and risk, uh, you know, the intersection of these two, Lines. Those of you, you know, basically, if you see the gestures David is motioning with, it's <laughs> very, in very communicative, plane. very important. I think he's making a supply and demand graph, but I'm not entirely. <laughs> yeah, I could have done that better, perhaps. But anyway, um, you know, you're forced basically towards one party. Not you know, you're not necessarily forced towards an ideological position because they're 
there is a conservative case for seeing climate change as a problem and a conservative case for how to address the problem, which is slightly different from the way that liberals would do it. But from a partisan standpoint, as a partisan matter, there is simply nothing coming out of the Republican mainstream, you know, the Republican establishment that offers any solution, any glimpse of, you know, a, a way to get a handle on this problem. Um, yeah. So if we were doing the podcast of, you know, policy issues that, that put us, you know, to the left, this is, this is absolutely one of those for me, or I mean, this is basically the biggest one for me. Um, cause it, it implies so many others. I mean, in terms of social justice, um, in terms of racial justice, um, just focusing on America now, you know, class and, and race and ethnicity are so, you know, are so intertwined that the most vulnerable people look at Houston, the most vulnerable people are in mo in many, many instances, also the, um, you know, immigrant communities, uh, people who can't speak English, blacks, Hispanics, uh, you know, the, all those intersections of, um, you know, various dimensions of sort of social and uh, political vulnerability are exposed by something like climate change. And so, um, just saying like, yeah, we'll get over it. Yeah. If it's a problem, we'll deal with it. That's not really, and I'm sure it's not really that bad, bad a problem. Like who suffers from society collectively shrugging in that way? You know, it's, it's often people of color and particularly poor people of color. So it's, it's like the master issue, um, for me. So, yeah. yeah and it is the intersection of so many cultural points. I mean, yeah. it just is. That's why the Congressman that you work for, uh, Bob Inglis was in such a weird position by being a conservative, a legitimately conservative Republican who was in favor of dealing with climate change, who believed it was real. And the pushback he got from other people on the right was kind of ridiculous. I mean, it was, it was more tribalist conservative tribalist yeah. were conservatives than it was anything to do with logic or reason. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like, wait a second, you know, I don't think you've gotten this or that point, you know, on this issue. Like you haven't convinced me about a, B or C it's like, we don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. Like that isn't our issue. If this is now your issue, then you are not one of us. Right. Like, that Which is how the left sometimes way. gets with pacifism. They have, yeah. and there's quite a spectrum on the left. I mean, there are other people. There's your, your Hillary Clinton, possibly John Kerry in there too. Little, little bit Barack Obama, who want to do humanitarian interventions a lot, and then there are the ones who are just sort of, well, we're going to pull back and say no war at all because war is bad, which I think is just a horrific viewpoint to take. Right. Like, there are atrocities in the world that we have to use our power to stop, and um, you know, military force is devastating it's it's really horrible if you have to use it somewhere but there are situations where you have to use it yeah and it's, i mean it, it's a very very tough this is a very tough issue and um you know again when i brought up the iraq war is something that alienated me from the left um i don't say that to suggest that even the most horrible atrocities necessarily require 
us morally to intervene and stop them because as a matter of state policy, the state has to decide using a variety of values, some of them moral and some of them not moral. And when I say not moral, I don't mean like immoral, I mean amoral, you know, the raison d'etat, just pragmatically, how much does it cost? How many other things can we do with the but money that it would can take? Can we do this? I mean, that's part And of also, it. exactly, can yeah. we do this? And and also, you know, can we, pr- you know, like, why this one versus the other one? If we can only do, you know, a certain number of interventions that would be in any way effective, how do we say which one of these uh, crises around the world we intervene into? And that's, I mean, that's well, a different, I mean, that's that's a different issue. So with the Iraq one, again, with the Iraq one, exactly. I was you know, just, the question is, yeah. we were already there. And, you know, I was against going in, but once we were there, everything changed. And, you know, Darfur was kind of, as you were, I mean, you were talking about, as you were talking about this, uh, you know, it popped into my head that um, that was around the same period that all these Samantha Power type people were saying, like, you know, this is the kind of thing that we should get involved in, like not that terrible imperialistic racist war, you know, in Iraq, where we're oppressing all those poor people. Um, You know, we should be helping the poor victims in Darfur who are being, you know, massacred left and right. And uh, it's not that that is not, it's not that that was not true in a moral sense. If only we could do, if only we could have done more to help those people. Um, But it's like now in, you know, Myanmar, Burma with the Rohingya Muslims, it's like those I mean, it's, it's atrocious. It is absolutely atrocious what is going on there. And very few people, you know, very few enough people seem to care at all. But then caring and actually being able to do something are very different. And, um, you know, I mean, we have to bear witness, even if that's all we can do. But, you know, I, I'm, you know it's a different question to uh, just you know, come to some position of saying that we have a moral obligation under all circumstances to go in and prevent atrocities like that, because that simply, that simply would not work. We couldn't, we couldn't do it. And we also don't have the right to do it depending on the case. Right. Well, that's, I mean, so when you bring up Iraq again, one of the arguments that got bandied about a bit was, Oh, well, if you're going to invade Iraq for this reason, why didn't you invade Iran, which is also working on nuclear weapons, or why didn't you invade North Korea, which is working on nuclear weapons? And, I mean, part of the problem with that is it, it's not a difficult question why we invaded Iraq and not the other places, and that's that Iraq was the place we could invade. I mean, if you, if you look at the size of Iran, the population of Iran, what, would, what it would entail to have invaded Iran instead of Iraq, that would have been very different. Um, and as a lot right. of people well, are also- doing now... There's also another Korea, issue that they have so much conventional artillery aimed at Seoul that invading North Korea is not practical in a way that invading Iraq was. Well, not only practical, I mean, it, the invasion of Iraq was a stupid blunder. Or let's put it this way. It was a blunder. It was not a stupid blunder. There was a lot of stupidity going into the blunder. But the issue there is it was extremely complicated. And the fact that Iraq had, you know, Saddam had invaded Kuwait. We 
had to repulse that, or not repulse, but, you know, reverse that invasion and liberate Kuwait. This was a cause of great unity around America, you know, around American leadership in the world, including from a lot of the countries that later, I mean, you know, the organization of the Islamic Conference that um, basically, I mean, that cleaved the other way, uh, you know, on the Iraq issue or on the second Gulf War, I should say. Um, but the presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia, which was necessitated by the first Gulf War and America taking the lead to preserve world order against that sort of smash and grab thugism that, you know, Saddam represented led to, or it, it, um, it supercharged Al-Qaeda. This was, you know, Osama bin Laden's message. I mean, this is what he said, is that you know, the presence of the infidel in the Holy Land required taking the fight to the far enemy um, and not the organization against local tyrannies that other um, jihadist thinkers were focused on. And so, I mean, the, the idea that Saddam was behind September 11th is a lie. Um, the idea that he was, you know, closely linked to Al Qaeda was at best a misinterpretation of intelligence, if not a lie. Um, but the realization that there was a Gordian knot of security and terrorist concerns in the region that could be solved if you took the troops that were in Saudi Arabia and moved them out of the Holy Land, you know, the Muslim, you know, land guarding the holy places, uh, and into Iraq would work. I mean, that, that would be cutting the Gordian knot. Now, as I said, so that is, that is not stupid. That is bold and, you know, it is a solution to a real problem by which I, which is to say it's not stupid. However, as I said, there was an enormous amount of stupidity that accompanied that decision and turned it into, you know, just the most colossal blunder in America's foreign policy history. I mean, it's interesting how we did a podcast about uh, our issues with the GOP and it turned into a long discussion on gay marriage. Now we do one on our policy heresies against the left and it's all about the Iraq war, which is not a bad thing on the whole because we are disagreeing with what people on the left did. It's not like we turn this into a giant, let's bash the right for mistakes they made, you know, last decade um, sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, I'll jump us to a slightly different policy issue now. Uh, let's talk about the minimum wage, um, which is sort of a stand-in in some ways for a lot of liberal economic errors. Now, I happen to think that the minimum wage should be higher than it is now. Part of the problem is that we, um, it hasn't been indexed to inflation. And so if you had indexed it to inflation way back when, it might be in that $15 uh, in our area now. I don't know if it would be exactly that, but 
It would I think be, it would. I think it'd be, if not 15, it'd be like maybe even 16. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when, I mean, when you're talking, it seems to me that as a policy matter, if this were at all practical, and there may be other barriers to this, that the ideal way to do it is to just pick, when we get to a minimum wage that feels roughly acceptable, not perfect, but roughly acceptable, link it to inflation from there so you don't have to keep hiking it at random intervals. What we're doing now is almost the worst way to do it from an economic standpoint, which is that you have these long periods where it's too low, and then all of a sudden you jump it up to a level in a very sudden spike. And it's not even clear when that's going to happen because it's up to the vagaries of policy. What business tends to want is things to be a lot smoother and more certain. If you know, there, there would be difficulties in having to update, you know, say every year for the new inflation level, what the minimum wage is going to be. And then you might argue about what inflation metric you're using. But the point is that businesses on the whole do much better if you just had a nice predictable way to do it and the current way is incredibly unpredictable right and, and sudden in its shocks i mean and the left sort of it gets to one of the left's fundamental economic errors which is that it seems to believe there are things you can do to the economy by fiat and right. that's not how economies function the rights problem with that is that they, they tend to think that um because you can't just control things in the economy the way the left would like to that you shouldn't do anything, and or, or you should do very, very little. And uh, it's utopian thinking to think that the free market is perfect on its own. It's very Rousseauian in a way. It's like saying the free market is man and who is the savage noble in the state of nature, and then society comes and corrupts it. Um, whereas the yeah. left tends to a view that's, you know, um, it's not quite Hobbesian. I really wanted that to work as a, as a connection, but... The left comes to a view where it thinks that it can just... Well, wait, why Why isn't it Hobbesian? Of course it's Hobbesian. It's that people are so brutal and nasty and exploitative that if you leave the free market to its own devices, you result in you know massive exploitation in ways that force you know the state to come in and tell everyone, you know, just to crush everyone's liberty and, uh, and that it is allowed to do so because it results in you know, security for everyone. And well, I meant more in terms of a way to, to express it that works with the economic fiat of we can force this to function the way that we want it to, um, which I guess maybe is a little Hobbesian. Yeah. But, I mean, Hobbes had, had, I mean, he believed that the state had the authority to do it. I don't know. I mean, he wouldn't have, I think been as naive as, you know, to say, I mean, if, if asked, Hey, Hobbes, what do you think the effect would be if your theory were applied to market interactions? If he was able to understand the question, he would probably uh, understand. It's like, well, if you, you know, tell the fishermen on, you know, in London Harbor, like you can only sell your fish for, you know, half of a penny. Uh, and yet you must produce the same amount of fish as if you could sell them for four pennies. You know, how many fish do you think will be produced? And how many will be sold, you know, on the open market and how many will be sold in the black market? I think you'd get the right answer to that question. Right. Yeah. And so um, that mindset is a fundamental liberal issue where you've got a market error that, that could be fixed, that maybe should be fixed. But they tend to go about it in these very 
sclerotic ways where you just have the now it's time for minimum wage increase and we're going to suddenly jump it from seven dollars to fifteen dollars i mean i've heard that in the so there's been a bunch of studies saying different things about these sudden local rises in minimum wages some saying ah, it's not that big a deal and others saying it's been pretty bad um but uh i mean one fundamental part of the minimum wage that is where liberals can also be led astray is that uh i mean the country has different costs of living in different places. It just does. $15 an hour might be necessary or important in particularly the left-leaning coastal areas where things tend to be expensive, but it might be complete nonsense to put a $15 minimum wage to somebody who's working somewhere in rural Oklahoma. Right. Well, and I mean, so one of the, 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 the second point that I was going to get to as we continue our conversation um, is just a, a better understanding of, the ways in which the state interfering in the market uh, simply creates incredibly complicated um, problems in aligning all the interests of the actors involved, where you have, you know, the voter who is empowering this, the elected official to empower a bureaucrat to regulate market interactions some of which will involve the voter, some of which will not, you know, and the idea that all of those interests are supposed to align in a way that, you know, the bureaucrat can determine. Um, it's just, it's just way more complicated than actually this is gets this the, you know, the public choice theory thing, which is supposedly the basis of, you know, everything bad in society. This new book of uh, democracy and chains, you know, is about how like public choice theory is like a secret right wing plot to destroy democracy. Um, that's uh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I even opened this, this topic, but you know, getting to your, to your point, I mean, minimum wage is a good way to explore the way that this works because, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, left, you know, left coast, like leftist co you know, high cost of living coastal areas that are nominally supportive of, um, a higher minimum wage because they're, higher have higher cost of living well like that may be true for people who work in a fast food uh restaurant or who are working in hotels you know uh, cleaning rooms and stuff like that um if they're not unionized and don't have higher pay anyway but we already discussed this issue of um maine attempting to raise its minimum wage and having uh, to go back and reduce the minimum wage from, you know, to, to basically re repeal their own attempt to increase the minimum wage because of uh, very angry and impassioned feedback from their own constituents, many of whom were people who said, like, Maine has a, has a, a very important hospitality industry, and when rich, you know, New Yorkers and Bostonians come up here, and go to a restaurant and buy lobster, you know, I rely on three months of working in that seasonal industry and getting big tips on top of the, uh, on top of the check. And I take that money home. And if they come and think, well, you know, the server, great server, but yeah, they're getting 15 bucks an hour anyway. I don't need to tip them. Right. Like then that's going to destroy their, uh, their income. And so those people, whether that fear is true or not, you know, those people rallied 
based on that fear um, and said, hey, state senate, you know, I know you meant well by this, but it was a stupid move and you have to take it back because 15, $15 minimum wage is too high for us here. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that, um, again, as I said, like that, that, that interest group of, um, people who are in tips and work in that particular industry may have had an excess impact on the whole process. And, you know, it could be that for one thing, they were simply wrong about the potential effect, uh, even on themselves and whether or not they were true, they were correct in the impact on their own interests. Um, you know, an objective amount analysis may have may be, you know, may be able to show that, um, whether they need to suffer a little bit, it would have an, a massive positive impact on, all the other industries in the state and more people would have more money and therefore, you know, regular Mainers who didn't used to have enough money to go out would then be going to the same restaurant. And, you know, that seasonal seasonal worker who <clears throat> thought they could only get that salary for three months out of the year <clears throat> based on people coming into the state from outside could actually have that job all year round because more Mainers would be more prosperous. I mean, it's possible that that's the case, but, um, you know, that isn't the case that was made. And it's, it's so complicated that again, as you say, it's like, if that business had been able over the last 40 years to say, okay, you know, every three years based on a rolling average of, you know, of, in, of, um, inflation, I know that the minimum wage is going up. So, okay, this year it's going up again by another 50 cents, like, I knew it was going to happen. It's factored into the books. No problem. Then we'd be in a much better situation. But um, because of the sort of herky-jerky fiat, uh, it's it just becomes so much harder again to to align all those competing interests. Yeah. And then and then there's just this like impatience from the left that it's like, well, but you know, but what's your problem? Like, get with the program. We need to have fifteen dollars across the whole country right now. And it's like, you know, it's just annoying because it's, um, I can, again, it's the church lady thing in me that I can see that like, like that might be the best way to motivate, you know, the voters that are the best target demographics for, for turning out for, you know, democratic, uh, elections. But I think we've, I think one of the lessons of 2016 was whether the church lady thing is, is the right way to go. Um, people, when they feel like they're not getting the whole truth, get pretty surly and act in very strange ways. Right. Well, I mean, the whole Donald Trump thing was kind of similar to any television episode where a character loses their memory and then goes and talks to the characters who are his real friends and then the ones who are like the villain and always you get like the real friends tell some lie about something that's like not that important, but it is a lie. And then the villain uses some well-apportioned truths and suddenly the person's like, well, you lied to me and he was telling me the truth. So I'm going to side with him. And then the villain has some horrible scheme and it all goes badly. And eventually the person gets their memory back. That's but an amazing I, example. Yeah. What, is there like a specific? I'm specifically thinking of an arc in the television show Angel during its uh 
third season? Third okay. season, I think. Um, no, fourth season, fourth season, where a character loses her memory and then, like, the good guys tell one or two minor lies and then the bad guy tells, like, a couple of well-timed truths and yeah. shocker how that ends up going. Interesting. Well, alert right. for a 10-year-old <laughs> in season four, even though you'll see it coming. Yeah, I'm not I'm not aware of that uh, show, but that that strikes me as like a really excellent plot device that could be that I feel like I've seen. Yeah, as, as I was saying, I, I was trying to think of what other times I've seen it, and I only came up with the yeah. end episode, but I know I've seen it before. Yeah. Anyway, it just, no, that's it, good. That's good. Well, not even it's not just the Trump phenomenon; it's the Bernie Sanders phenomenon and the, yeah. the Jill Stein and you know Gary Johnson phenomenon, where people were so frustrated by the I mean, what they thought were, you know, half-truths coming from the establishment that they, just on all sides, went to these crazy outliers. And, you know, just, even though Hillary won the popular vote by three million, you know, not enough in the right places. Hillary Clinton has certainly told her share of lies over over her life. But when you stop and try to look at the relevance of a lot of those lies, the importance of them, then... It doesn't, it, I mean, to me, it didn't seem that bad compared to Trump, who just pathologically lies about completely irrelevant things. He just does. But he. Right, or as, I mean, as we talked about before, you know, even, um, I mean, you, you can call it a lie, you can call it a optimistic, right. optimistic projections, you know, but the Bernie Sanders econ, you know, economy numbers also were just, sh- should have been laughable. Um, and they were. And obviously were to the two of us, but. Um, you know, people thought, oh, okay, well, you know, this is at least fresh. It's not the sa- it's not the same lie that I've heard before. And, and then, uh, and so, it had, then so it had the ring of truth. Yeah, you run into the situation where the lies people get sick of in politics tend to be a little similar to, you know, the little white lies you tell in your normal life where yeah. it's, well, you know, I didn't want you to do whatever, so I told you a small lie that I thought would manipulate that. And you know, that's not good. You shouldn't be doing that. But it's not in the end all that important. As a, so, but so then Trump comes out and he doesn't do the little white lies, which is essentially yeah. how politics have been running. The little white lies um, he replaces with a bunch of vulgar lies, and people are thinking, "Well, we're so used to getting these little white lies that here's somebody being vulgar, so he must be telling the truth." And yeah. then he was actually lying way more about way more things that mattered way more, but it seemed more honest because it wasn't the same lie they'd been being told. Right. Well, and I, I, I like your phrasing in vulgar lie, um, but then also like really huge lies, like yeah. crazy, enormous lies. Like the, I would have won the popular vote if not for the illegals, you know? Um, I mean, that one is the one that fixate that I am fixated on because it is just such a poisonous attack on our constitution and our, our democracy. But what I love about that is the, the weird sophistry involved in the argument that he says, don't listen to the polls. The polls were wrong because the results showed that I won. But then he says, oh, also the results are wrong. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, just, it's not worth right. plumbing I mean, the depths. Trump's of... lies are not really worth delving yeah. into here because, well, look, he lies a lot. Yeah, at least at least it, it could be for another podcast, yeah. but we'd have to do a lot a lot of work in order to make that valuable and not cram it into the and last. Not just couple what months. everybody else has already seen everywhere. I mean, all yeah, the, well, that, that too. tallies now. That too. Um, I do want to do a podcast on Trump, but I want to do it on um, how his leadership style reflects things historically. I don't want to do it on his 
That's right now hyper specific lies. I'd rather do it in the sort of general sense that we tend to yeah. discuss things. You know, actually, yeah, that, be, we should we should do that because there was a really interesting article that I'd like to think more deeply about that uh, basically says like Andrew Jackson was a hero, notwithstanding his um, you know brutality uh, towards particularly Native Americans. Um, he played an absolutely crucial role in the development of our country towards a properly functioning mass democracy. And that is the reason that he was, um, you know, beloved by many people for, for many generations. Um, and Trump has absolutely no right to claim that legacy because he, he represents everything that Andrew, uh, Andrew Jackson would have detested. And I mean, not would have did detest in his action in his life, um, and so anyway, that's yeah, that, that's its own story. Know. Which I mean, I was thinking about doing that for our tenth episode because it's kind of a capstone on the first arc of our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can discuss that more later, but yeah, I, I mean, the key takeaway from this part of the discussion is that the left has it. So if you look at Venezuela, which is um, if you want to talk about. You can't do things by economic fiat. Talk about the great the great segues of all time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't care about having a segue there. I was like, whatever. Yeah. We're, we're closing in on what we have to do for the end of the timing on the podcast, and um, I'm just going to go for it. Um, yeah. It sickens me that there are people on the left who say great things about Venezuela's government. It sickens right. me that there are... I mean, I think I've seen a bit more of this from like the Jeremy Corbyn types in Britain than I have from some of the leftists here in America, but... I mean, people who said good things about Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what world you're living in, and they tend to say, yeah. "Oh, you're, you're you're following the left, the propaganda of the Western world, or whatever." But um, despite the fact, I mean, it's in the Western Hemisphere too, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, so if you look at what's been going on in Venezuela economically, it's a really big indictment of trying to determine things economically by fiat you can't just come in and say well now all of this is going to be at this price exactly and you see that it just results in a shortage of everything it's a lot of the stuff we used to see in communist countries it's something that the left really needs to bear in mind that it's okay to use economic policies that will sort of lead people in certain directions it's okay to ban things that are very harmful but you can't create the market you want. You can't just declare, I want a market where this is the price for this, and it is produced at this amount. It just doesn't. Yeah, and, it's really yeah, and actually, so this, I mean, it probably should, uh, you know, I'm mindful of the time, and this is a this is a big issue that I may not be doing myself any favors by trying to open at this late date, as it were. But it's a, it's a perfect segue to the, to the third point that I was going to hit on this policy discussion, which is that as I thought back to... So there's this really interesting conversation that I saw friends getting into on Facebook about retirement. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it was, I think it was, it was, it was um, triggered by a friend who shared a like, you know, like 30 tips for people under 30 and managing their money, you know, that, that kind of a thing. And one of the main takeaways was, you know, you should save a certain amount by a certain time. And, and so then the, the, the comment thread was quite robust because it included a lot of, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording that, you know, the condition, the economic conditions that our generation have, you know, the members of our generation have faced are so different from 
our parents that a lot of this kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps advice uh, rings very hollow. However, one of the things that I saw in the conversation was that some of the more leftward leaning people seem to reject out of hand the fact that over the long term, if you invest in the United States stock market up to this point, or if you had invested in the United States stock market and had not panic sold, your investment would get a year on year, you know, six to 8% return. That's not an interpretation. That's not like right wing talking points. That's just a fact. It doesn't necessarily indicate anything about future performance, but that is a fact. And it occurred to me, you know, okay, conversation about retirement and how, you know, millennials should, should save for their own retirement. And a bunch of people chimed in to say like, oh, you know, you should have a very uh, long-term approach and definitely buy in regularly to the stock market. And that should be a, a, a crucial component of your retirement uh, portfolio if you have the money. And this is the point. If you have the money, crucial issue to come back to. You know, but then there were these people coming in and saying, um, you know, this is bogus. Like, why would you trust the market with your retirement? It's like, again, you well, why would you trust it with your retirement? Well, if you trust, like, numbers and math and history and just, like, the real world that we are in, like, you should trust it because anybody who did trust it got eight, you know, often seven or eight percent six to eight percent um, annual returns. And it is true that even if you, you know, if you bought in based on like the Dow Jones and the S&P 500, if you bought in at the height of the stock market crash in 2008, you know, 2008, you even if, you know, at the very height, you'd be up, you'd be at 150% now based on just the general numbers. Um, you know, so I'm not talking about day trading. I'm not talking about market, you know, timing the market or anything, just regular trust in the market. And as I thought about this, it occurred to me that that was what George W. Bush had basically tried to do, or at least potentially it's what he had tried to do in 2005 with Social Security reform, which was a catastrophic failure uh, from a policy perspective. And the reason it was a failure is that people didn't trust the Republicans to reform Social Security. And they were probably right not to trust them because this is the thing. The market is an incredible engine that creates prosperity. And the state should not, as you perfectly described, like, you know, as in Venezuela, attempt to, you know, just chain that engine and redirect it, you know, and pump fuel into it and supercharge it and say, okay, we need more prosperity for more people. And so let's just, you know, pretend that we can tell it exactly what to do. But there are forces that are being generated that the state should use to create benefits for as many people as possible, particularly people, and this gets back to the point I you know, put that footnote on, who don't have the money to buy into the system. And if they do have the money, often don't have the margins or the buffers, they don't have enough money that when they put it in, they have the luxury of riding out the bust. You know, they have to sell. Or if, if, you're, too, if, you're, if you're too old, you know, you have to start pulling out uh, of your retirements. You have to start spending because you don't have any other source of income. And so things that you bought, you know, for 
you know, go back to my previous example, you know, if you buy in at the height of the, of the market during the bubble and you have no other income and you have to start selling, you know, a couple of years later when it's gone from, what was it? 14. Yeah, it was 14,000. And then it hit 6,000, right? Like if you have to 6, sell it, I think was about the, the trough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, then you're screwed. But the thing is the government in a, you know, could create a hybrid system that, I mean, theoretically speaking, there's no reason it couldn't create a hybrid system that takes, you know, tax receipts to help people who otherwise don't have the capital to invest in the economy and use that tremendous engine to create prosperity for more people. And of course, the problem is, do you, you know, who do you trust to do that and not to take that money to just goose up, you know, Wall Street quarterly earnings for however long the ride lasts, you know, I mean, that's the problem is, is getting into the, into the details, but as a like default position coming from the left, you know, no privatization of social security. That to me is, is, um, I mean, that kind of absolutism strikes me as, um, again, obviously politically useful because it worked in torpedoing, George Bush's 2005 approach, but it also strikes me as something that, you know, ideally someone like Elizabeth Warren would have the credibility and the expertise to be able to step forward with a credible plan to actually use the power of the state to harness the market to enrich more vulnerable American families uh, who don't have the capital to buy into this machine, you know, to buy into the system, which is, you know, which has been and continues to enrich um, more privileged people like, you know, like members of our demographic, yours and mine. Yeah. Oh, I, there is something that, um, I mean, but part of the problem is, yeah, if you happen, just like we happened to be graduating from, college at the time when the world economy was collapsing. Yeah, that's when sounds... you retire, when you graduate can have a huge impact on your whole lifetime earnings and a lot of things that, that happen to you. Um, and it's kind of like that. If you put the money in the stock market, it does expose you to a risk that your retirement might come about at the trough. And part of the problem, of course, is when you start to privatize it and make it less safe, then it's stopped being social and it stopped being secure. So is it really social security anymore? Which is supposed to be there as, you know, this sort of social security is supposed to be the sort of last line of defense when everything else goes wrong. That's there for you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really have, I personally do not have good. I've read enough about all kinds of entitlement reform things to know that I have no good suggestions on that. <laughs> I have no well, original thoughts on that. I have yeah. nothing that I could point to you and say, this is how to do it. Um, right. It's well, tricky. It, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't dispute that at all. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that I have like, I have a proposal. Oh no, no, me. absolutely not. But, but it just strikes me as, as a failure of imagination um, to say that it, that it can only be illegitimate, that there is no way that it could work, that there is no way to make it, to make it work, to make it effective. Um, cause it seems like government shouldn't, you know, public servants shouldn't be in the habit of saying, no, it's too hard. We can't do it. 
if the demand is, you know, help our society become more fair and prosperous. And it seems like this is actually, I mean, you know, George W. Bush was panned, you know, it was like, oh, this compassionate conservative nonsense. He's, you know, he's neither compassionate nor conservative. He doesn't care about deficits, you know, and he's, you know, prosecuting this uh, racist war and all that stuff. You know, and again, it's like, well, if you really don't want compassion or conservatism, here we are with Trump. Um, again, like we were saying before, the, you know, the George W. Bush nostalgia is a little weird, but warranted in certain, in certain ways. And again, I just think that there's got to be a way for people who are informed and who, who do try to find the truth behind things to see something like social security, you know, entitlement reform. I'm speaking specifically about social security um, to use the benefits from the market in a way that the government could say, you know, the government has long enough time horizons that it can take all the troughs out. I mean, there's no, the, the whole point is just structure it. In a, don't, don't just, you know, take 50% of what people would be getting in social security and then put it in a private account and say, you're on your own, right? Like that's, that would be stupid. That would be a bad idea. It seems like there are, there've got to be ways to, um, you know, use the government's long time horizons to let, to help people ride out the trough. And in the meantime, starting when you're, when you start earning, you know, whatever time that is, but let's just say, you know, when you're, when you're 20 to the time you're 55 or 60, you know, the average, we, you know, we, we should be able to expect based on the record of the past that, you know, the average earnings that you'll get will be good enough that it'll be worth it for the government to, to help you with that. Anyway, it's just, it's not something I'm wedded to, but the point is that it's something that I realized that the, like the vehemence um, and the absolutism against the notion of doing anything to change um, social security from the system that, that we have now um, struck me as a, just a bad sign of how much bad faith there is in our political discussion as opposed to reflecting any real truth about um, what social security has to be, you know, the essence of the system. It seems like there, there are, there could be ways of modifying it to serve the purpose of the entitlement better than it is currently being served. But the, um, you know, lack of trust in the motivations behind the people who talk the most about the reform is the problem. And that's why, you know, like if, if you gave Elizabeth Warren ultimate power to change the system, I bet she could change it in a way that would make it better, perhaps along these lines. Um, because she both has the expertise and the motivation to do it properly. I, I believe, I think anyway, that's, that's all. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Warren could be great in that regard. She could also end up going rather poorly I haven't been super impressed by what I've heard out of her since she's gotten into the Senate because she does seem a little bit too bigger on some of the left shibboleths than um, 
really pausing and doing some analyses on certain things, but she's the sort of person who, I mean, I know she has the knowledge base that's so much greater than I do on all of these issues that, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be curious. I'd have to know more about it. If she actually ran for something, a national race, if she actually ran for a national race, then we'd probably hear enough more details. I do wonder, to some extent, how George W. Bush's um, uh, Social Security reform might have gone if it had been, you know, a decade or two later, um, now where we've had a bit of the rise of the index tracker funds, which we right. have been, so far, they seem to be doing pretty well, and they have very minimal, I mean, they don't really have management costs. So, I mean, the ability to invest and then generate money over, as you say, an extremely long horizon where the average is what's important. Right. It would not well, be exactly. That- and this is, yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason to think that this would ever actually happen because if the government just said like, oh, everybody gets a retirement account, the public trough will just throw, you know, pennies on the dollar of all tax income into these public retirement, you know, publicly hosted individual retirement accounts. Um. And, you know, you'll have totally transparent management, like all the costs will be totally transparent because it's like, it has to be because it's the government and blah, blah, blah. Like it would just be the, it would be the death knell of, of the, for the, of of many people who derive their entire, uh, very comfortable incomes from management fees, you know, as well as many of those, uh, you know, indexes that you, uh, you know, index funds that you just described. So, I mean, the, the array of forces against any kind of reform, like sensible reform, as I'm describing, um, to the extent that it would be sensible, you know, would definitely strangle it in the cradle. Um, and they don't call it the third rail for nothing. They don't call it the third rail for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. We have run a little bit long today, but I think that's fine because, um, we missed last week, so yeah. it's kind of okay to give them a little bit more of a jumbo-sized ep- uh, episode. I was going to run off and uh, try to make it to the uh, a bar to watch the Cleveland Browns play today. I'm adjusting my... For those who can't see the video, which is everybody because I'm not recording the video, I'm adjusting and proudly displaying my Cleveland Browns t-shirt right now. Um, unfortunately, I'm getting messages from my friends saying that the place is packed and does not actually have any spot to watch the game on the first floor and it has no elevator. So I don't have to run off anywhere. Just, <laughs> um, uh, David is always getting some off camera gestures from people telling him to hurry it up. Um, but, uh, I do think now is probably a good point to move on to our sign off. Um, which I am going to actually, David, you're invited to participate in this one because, oh. This is a rant that we almost recorded as the bonus episode last time, which is about the pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And I'm going to keep saying it like Arpaio because I don't know how I'm supposed to pronounce it, and I'm just going to be consistent. So I have I came across a story from 1997 about the kind of stuff that went on in uh, Arpaio's jail. And uh, one story was so horrifying and it hit me on such a personal level that I mean one of the reasons I didn't want to talk about it two weeks ago was I was so enraged by what I had read about 
that I didn't really think I could have a good or rational discussion about it. It's been two weeks and I'm still pretty mad, but I think I can be um, a little more reasonable because what I want to get to on how this, the things that are reflected by this story, I want to, um, I want to, uh, uh, I think I can answer some, some immediate reactions people get when they talk about somebody like Sheriff Arpaio. Because what you hear from people who support him is, oh, he's dealing with the nastiest, worst people. You have to treat him tough. You have to be rough. You have to be mean. And that's not what happens. That's not what ends up happening in the real world. Uh, the story that I'm referring to, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, it's a story of a man named Richard Post. Now, it'll become immediately obvious why um, this hit me hard as soon as I explain this. Uh, Mr. Post had, I'm assuming from the context of the story, a spinal cord injury um, that left him in a wheelchair. And um, to some extent, his life had a similar, some similar things happened with him that did with me after I was injured as a young, healthy man and in a wheelchair. His upper body became very strong. He was very proud of having, you know, a very powerful upper body, being doing a lot of billiards, arm wrestling, all that sort of stuff that you do when you show off how... Um, what kind of shape you are, the sort of stuff you see, the murder ball types of, although murder ball is specific to people who have upper arm issues as well. But um, the point is that uh, I have had, ever since being injured, there's a kind of fear that I can get about what would happen to me if I were maybe taken hostage somewhere or arrested in some third world country and didn't have access to some medical supplies that I need. Uh, in the case of Mr. Post, his his injury seemed to be a little different from mine. He seemed to have slightly different needs, but um, I still wholly identify with what happened to him. And to those of you who might say, oh, then just don't ever get arrested for anything. Um, I had a, an interesting a story that happened to me once. I was um, on a cruise in the Baltics and I was uh, going to, we were coming into Russia in St. Petersburg. And we're going through the, the custom, we're going through the, the, the line where you know, we're handing over our passports and everything. And I um, discovered at the last moment, I, had, I used to keep my passport in the same place I kept my wallet. And some money, dollars, had like bills, had fallen out of that pocket into my passport. And I was also missing a form I needed because I had accidentally given it to the wrong person. So... It's very easy to see how, if I had been paying slightly less attention, I might have passed a passport with insufficient documents but money inside it to a guy who was going to look at it in Russia. You could imagine I'd have been in jail pretty quickly if that had, if that had happened. Um, so accidents, weird things can happen that just cause you to spend, even if you're innocent, just a small amount of time in jail. Now, in this case, Mr. Post spent one night in the jail. Um, he made some mistakes, drunk at a bar, nothing major. Enough that, um, you know, he made mistakes there. He didn't make any mistakes once he was in the jail, though. And this is the important part I want to make very clear. Because once he was in the jail, he did nothing wrong, and that's where the horrible mistreatment began. Um, so Mr. Post needed uh, to use a medical device so that he could urinate, um, which is a huge issue uh, for people whose spinal cord injuries require that. Um, if you don't do it often enough, you get... It damages your kidneys, and it's incredibly painful. And, uh, I mean, kidney failure caused by that is a leading cause of death for people 
with spinal cord injuries. And um, the other, one of the other leading causes of death, and this is what got Christopher Reeve, is if you're sitting still for too long or, and you don't weight shift enough and you start to get um, pressure sores that can become very bad and get infected, and that's what happened to him. They can also just, if they get bad enough, you have to spend months in a hospital lying down. Uh, it's, it's a real problem that people who do not have spinal cord injuries are generally not familiar with. So Mr. Post ends up in a jail. Now, it's important to make a distinction here for people who, some of the things I hear defending Arpaio are ignorant on this fact, which is that a jail is not a prison. These are not, we're not talking about people who have gone all the way through the system and been convicted of a crime. And, um, and now you say, oh, well, they're awful people. They should be locked up, whatever. No, we're talking about a person who was caught with some tiny amount of marijuana in his bag. He's there for one night, just one night. Um, he's not, a, he's not, he's not one of these irredeemable, awful people that everyone likes to pretend all of these prisoners are. This is a man who has not been convicted of a crime. He is presumed to be innocent at this point. He needs a catheter. They won't give him one. And this is. I mean, this is just it, the idea that you would didn't. I had in my fears about what might happen to me if I were taken hostage or, um, you know, put in a Russian jail somewhere, um, you know, where maybe I'm on some very, uh, you know, hard surfaces that cause pressure sores or whatever. It would not even have occurred to me that I would have to worry in an American jail that someone would deny me necessary medical care during a one night stay. They refused to give him a catheter. He banged on the doors to demand it because it was desperate. He really, really needed one, and he should have been given one. But because Joe Arpaio is one of these, you know, these tough guys, and they're you know these, these guards, they're not supposed to treat these guys nice. They're supposed to treat them bad so that they don't commit more crimes. They refused to give him one, and then eventually they decided that he'd been making enough noise that they were going to put him in something they had called a restraint chair, um, which, from the description in the article, makes it sound somewhat like the electric chair where you just strap down everywhere so you can't move. And apparently this is a torture device that they used to use in Arpaio's jails to, um, to they call it a restraint chair. They use it to just restrain them still uh, when they were being difficult, just to make them so miserable they'd stop doing it. Well, if you were listening to the earlier part about the need to move around a lot and be on a cushioned surface, putting a paraplegic strapped in place so he can't move without a cushion on something like that is abominable. Like it's, it's miserable. I know part of what that would feel like, and it, it would be agonizing to go through the entire thing. He was there for two hours in this chair before they finally were able to convince, he was able to convince some nurses to come and tell them they had to put a gel pad under. This was not enough. And so he ended up having to spend months in the hospital afterwards to, you know, make up for the, the, the injuries that this time in this chair dealt him because of these these cruel guards who denied him medical care. Um, and, uh, I mean, for this man, his life collapsed. He had to take, he had to drop out of school because he had to spend four months in the hospital because of this. And remember, this is one night in jail as a guy with a tiny amount of marijuana who's only supposed to be held there for one. And by the way, um, marijuana is, I've never used it myself um, because I work in government um, sometimes. But, um, or at least I plan to, and uh, uh, it's supposed to help a lot with a lot of spasms and problems and pain that paraplegics get. I have heard that it is quite successful for this. I don't 
know, but I've heard it. And if it does work as well as I've sometimes heard described, you should not be throwing a person who's a paraplegic in jail at all for having marijuana. That's neither here nor there. The point is, while they were forcing him into this restraint chair, of course, he's sort of fighting back because this is the thing you should not do. They're, they're inflicting severe harm on him by doing this. They broke his neck. Not in the way that would completely paralyze him, but enough that it hurt the nerves that by the time the article was written, those big, strong arms he was so proud of had begun to atrophy a bit because he had lost some ability to use them. And I mean, I just think to myself about all the things that have happened to me in the 13 years since I've been injured and how proud I've gotten of getting you know, buff arms and, um, and, uh, and, and, and all of that. And, uh, what it would be like to then lose more, um, especially because it was at the hands of some cruel like, monster of a guard. Um, and so, of course, you may say, Joe Arpaio himself wasn't the one who did this. Be nicer to him. Well, you know, he ran the culture that said this is what you do. He ran the culture that said you have these restraint chairs and you put people in them. And then, of course, um, he defended his people when they would get in trouble. And of course they lied about stuff that they did with Mr. Post and, um, you know, video footage would later reveal that lie. So this is a, this is just one of the many horrible things that he's done, um, as a sheriff. And, um, it's not even the worst thing. Nobody died in this one. Although I have no doubt Mr. Post's life will be cut much shorter than it otherwise would have been because of this one night in jail where he asked for a medical supply. So, um, that's, just, I mean, that's a very, that's just the one that hits me the hardest on an emotional level. Um, and I just want to bring this up because I want to make just a recurring thing for me is people get these views about people who have made mistakes, people who have committed crimes that, oh, well, therefore they're a bad person and they deserve it. And part of the problem I've always had with the, they deserve it mentality is that it always seems to grow more and more as to who deserves it. Um, Mr. Post in this story did not deserve any of the things that happened to him at the hands of Joe Arpaio's guards. And a person who would run a system where that would happen is a threat to American values, a huge threat to American values. To pretend that what happened to him was somehow a necessary evil is absurd. And when Trump pardoned him, I mean... He was saying to everyone, being tough is good. Being tough is fine. If you violate someone's civil rights, I will protect you. I mean, he's giving people license to do inhuman treatment. And uh, there's a horrible irony that the, the Sheriff Arpaio committed a crime and was too weak to go through with his punishment after being the one who would insist on such harsh punishment for everyone else who ever did anything wrong. Um, so that's something that I find just very infuriating. And I, as I said before, there's this distinction between jail and prison. People sometimes will act as though any violation of any law is, um, it makes you a criminal who is therefore entitled to have any number of horrible things happen to you. And uh, this comes up a lot in the immigration debates, which is, of course, also connected to Sheriff O'Pire. When a lot of the illegal immigrants, some gigantic percentage, come in because they're here overstaying their visas, I mean, that's not a crime in the sense that people mean, you know, crime. You can violate rules and get in trouble for them without being a criminal in the way that people want to talk about being a criminal. There's, 
It's in much the same way that if you had, I don't know, been caught with an open container of alcohol on a city street somewhere or something like that, and you get arrested, you violated a rule, you violated a law, you've done something bad, but would you argue that that person is entitled to the harshest possible treatment? What's the level where you deserve the kind of things that happened to Richard Post? Because once you start saying that anybody can deserve that, I mean, it's the old line about, now that we've established you're a prostitute, we're just haggling over the price. And I think there are some things that we should put um, beyond a price as a society. And this is one of the reasons I am against the death penalty, which even among the left is a little unpopular as a position just because it polls so badly. But for me, the logic is I don't have sympathy for the horrible murderer dying. It's not for him that I don't want us to have a death penalty. It's not sympathy for him. It's the fact that, yes, innocent people can get caught up in this, but it's also what it does to us as a society to start saying, he deserves this. This is a thing we're going to do. We are going to have our vengeance on them, and we are going to do this horrible thing of killing someone. Because when you start to look over at, oh, somebody in the Middle East took a hostage and killed them, and they say, well, this person committed blasphemy. That's the greatest crime. Of course you should be killed for that. I just believe that as a matter of firm principle, when you have somebody who is helpless under your power, it is immoral for you to intentionally harm them in that manner. Uh, I just, I think that that goes wrong. You could, there's almost a weird small exception I could think of where if you have a dictator who's been deposed, who needs to be executed so that the people can breathe easily and know that he'll really never come back because a lot of exiled ones do return. But, um, but that's, I mean, that's sort of an, a, a small portion of it. I just want to make this case to everybody that um, saying they deserve it is usually a pathway to bad things. You need to be concerned about yourself um, and what it does to you when you start to do these things. When you start to um, treat prisoners harshly, when does it get to the point where maybe you start to enjoy it because you think, well, they deserve it, and I just like the feeling of exerting my power over this person. It's it's dangerous. I'm not a big fan of slippery slope arguments, but I do feel that moral decay is a real thing that you have to be on watch for. And I see too many times where, this comes up as well when people talk about, well, I hope he goes to prison and gets raped a lot. I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, and you should not be saying that. That's that's wrong. Because you start off by saying, well, he deserves it. And then the question starts becoming, who deserves it? And I don't I don't know. I got a little emotional about uh, the part of the story. I'll, I'll try to link it in the uh, comments. David, you had a lot to say about Sheriff Arpaio last time we talked. Uh, Downing, you'd like to add? Um, this is, yeah, this is interesting. You, I mean, there's a lot there. And obviously it's a, I mean, it, it, it hits you in an issue or in a, you know, this issue hits you in a way that um, brings up a lot of thoughts and, and feelings. And, you know, one of the ones that I ended with that I thought was actually really interesting, not in, not didn't seem immediately connected, but you mentioned this, you know, oh, well, maybe if you had a dictator under your power, it would make sense to, you know, to kill them so that they would not come back to menace the society. But in exactly the way that you describe the negative effect of seeking vengeance on individuals and the way that it, you know, to be put in that position of power, I mean, there's the Stanford prison guard experiment, um, you know, which 
the replica, you know, replicability issues um, that perhaps. But there are ethical the, issues in trying to replicate it. Well, exactly. No, but I mean, it, we shouldn't be too confident in drawing conclusions from, an, you know, a social science experiment that cannot be replicated. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it has the ring of truth and. It has the ring of truth because you look at these circumstances where people are given power and it might be a chicken and egg thing. It's like, could you put a decent person in the position of being a guard in Joe Arpaio's jail? And would that decent person stay decent? It is likely, I mean, it does not seem plausible that they could stay decent. They would either have to leave or they would become one of these thugs like the like the people you described who so um brutally enforced their authority on a, a just a victim someone who couldn't do anything but attempt to say you know i know what you're trying to do i know you're trying to dominate me because i'm the criminal and you're the big bad police officer you know, or, you know, in this case, jail guard or whatever. Um, but I am telling you, you have to give me this thing or, or else I will die. Like, I do not deserve this. I have rights. I'm a human being. I'm a, I'm a citizen of this country. You have to give this to me. Claiming that authority was, of course, what in, I mean, I don't want to step too far into the heads of these people, but just from the basic facts of the case, it seems quite clear that, you know, that claim to authority of this you know, this uh, prisoner in the jail to say, you have, you know, I have rights, you have to give me these medical devices so that I cannot die, you know, was what enraged these guards and pushed them to, I mean, the way I read this, I mean, what the story that I read, it wasn't that he was fighting, that this Mr. Post was fighting as he was being put into the, um, you know, into the, into this, into that restraint chair. It was after he received the gel pack and they were putting him back in the chair and they said, you know, basically it was, okay, you got your cushion. Now, welcome back into the chair. And they, at that point, cinched the restraint so hard that that just the cinching of the restraint put pressure on his neck that broke his spine. Yeah, the, the I may be projecting my own rage at the guards when I talk about resistance. Yeah, no, I mean, but the, I mean, the facts of the case are absolutely appalling absolutely appalling in a way that um, goes to your point about how we exercise force and why we exercise force and what our authority to do so is and what the effect of the exercise of force and authority has on people in those positions. And I think similarly, you know, there's an, there's an analogous manner in which what you're saying about the moral decay that comes from putting people in those positions to exercise that force and the, and the way that that um, strengthens, nurtures, you know, enhances the, um, the nat I mean, what seems to be the sort of natural sadism of some people, there is a way in which that actually goes to your point about the dictator, but in the opposite way that you described, which is that, you know, there's, there's an argument, there's a line of argument in, um, you know, international relations theory that you need to offer dictators the golden parachute yeah. for them to get out and to retire to, you know, Saudi Arabia or the French Riviera or whatever, wherever they want to go, wherever they'll be safe. Because if you don't, 
they will, like Assad, fight to the death. And in so doing, destroy their societies. And there's a way in which, you know, the, what happened to Gaddafi, where he, um, I mean, there are many lessons to draw from the North Koreans, the Iranians, you know, the Syrians, the, you know, Iraqi uh, case. But one very plausible argument is that, you know, Gaddafi uh, played ball with the international community. He ended his nuclear program. He more or less attempted to move towards normalization of his relations with the broader world. And his reward was at the first sign of trouble when he attempted to put down his, you know, the uprising in his own country, um, his, our, you know, his military was decimated from aerial bombardment and special forces uh, intervention. And he himself was left to be, you know, viciously tortured and murdered by the people that he had oppressed. And, you know, <laughs> the, uh, Kim, you know, the Kims of the world, the Assads of the world, uh, look at this and, and we're able to see, well, the only choice that we have, the only card that we can play is let's make our, let's make intervention so costly that, you know, the rest of the world will understand that it's better to play ball with us on our terms than, you know, than otherwise. And the, the urge to punish and, and kill even dictators is along the lines of this argument, um, more damaging to their societies than a more, you know, uh, even tempered goal oriented and not revenge you know, sort of pragmatic outcome oriented, not uh, retributive vengeance seeking uh, policy. And, you know, that the, by seeking vengeance, you are actually harming the interests of, of the people um, being discussed. And I mean, obviously I wouldn't have brought it up if I didn't think that argument was, was very plausible. And it dovetails very neatly with the individual effect of um, this, you know, righteous exercise of force that you're describing where, you know, in the eyes of the guard, okay, this guy disrespected me. If he disrespected me, he disrespected all the people, you know, on whose behalf I have been charged with exercising this force to keep law and order in our society. And therefore I, you know, swelling up with pride will punish this ne'er-do-well for daring to disrespect, you know, the great state of Arizona. Putting an individual in that position is only, you know, you're, you're all you're doing is corrupt is just you're putting that person on a path to, into personal corruption. Um, and again, similarly, um, you know, if you wanted to help the people of Syria, one of the ways we could have done that would have been if we had convinced Assad and his family and their top supporters that if they gave up that they would have very very comfortable lives and as as detestable and disgusting as that seems um 
you know, that someone who uh, comes from, a, I mean, someone in a, a sort of a, a political order that um, has, you know, benefited so much from uh, a system that relies on the vicious torture and repression of, you know, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people, murder, torture, and, you know, and, and censorship and oppression of tens of thousands of, of direct victims. And of course, you know, the millions of people in the broader society, um, that's, it's a, it's a disgusting pill to swallow, but that is the pill that you have to swallow, or it, it is very plausibly by this line of argument, the pill that you would have to swallow, um, to prevent greater harm. Yeah. Well, there's, so, I mean, yeah. I thought about it that has come up with me sometimes when I think about situations like, um, with the Palestinians where you have an injustice being done that you feel rises to the level that, you know, violent action is necessary. So there are some things that are worth killing for, but sometimes you end up in a situation where the killing is counterproductive to the goal, but the rage. I thought this was a sign off, Charles. I didn't realize we were starting the, the Pal Israel Palestine. Oh, we are not starting this. We're making a very small point that I will regret many years from now. But um, where I was going with this was it, it, it struck me as being that um, people say there are things that are worth killing for. Well, there are some things so important they're worth not killing for. Like that desire. Yes, for I think that's a fair. That desire for vengeance. Um, there are things that are so important that you need to set that aside and say, Maybe my ancestors had a great injustice done to them. Maybe I feel that morality demands vengeance, which demands me taking a violent action. But then when you think about your descendants and what kind of life are they going to lead, what are they going to lead? The life that they're going to lead is more important than the vengeance. And when I talk about, you know, the example I use of the foreign dictator is largely because you need a scenario where the person staying alive is itself a threat. Um, we have the ability, and we talk about these supermax prisons we've got now. I don't think anyone has ever broken out of one, have they? Uh, I, like the I super mean, top end prisons. I, I um, uh... It is my understanding that if we, when we have the truly dangerous, truly horrific people that we've identified and we put them away, we can put them away such that they will not come back. Um, and so that's part of why I don't like the death penalty because um, it's just not necessary at that point, unless you have a very strong argument for it having a dissuasive effect, um, some way to deter people. But I mean, I don't, the, the evidence on that is not great. You could imagine a world, I could imagine a world where the evidence is strong enough that I would support it for that reason alone. But if you support it for that reason, that deterrent effect alone, you can't let yourself get swallowed up in the desire for vengeance when you do it. You have to be sad that you're doing it. It's not happy. Right. I, no, I, I agree with that, but I, I gotta say, I, I was thought this was a sign off. This is like, well, part of what has to happen the, is of the, the rest of the podcast we've done. I'm about to rush off to. I'm getting texts informing me that you know the place is not completely accessible. So I was like, okay, I've got a little bit more time. Um, yeah. uh, but anyway, so I want to. Uh, this is actually going to bring up um, something that could bring together a couple of strands, which is one of my favorite Nietzsche quotes. Well, first, uh, I, I gotta. The, There's what? a time constraint on my end. Oh, okay. So, sure. Yeah, uh, we won't have infinite time. Where here. he says to distrust all in whom the urge to punish is powerful. Um, very nice. It's a very important quote. It's something you need to remember. Um, and uh, now, it being Nietzsche, the sentence goes on and becomes a bit more problematic when he talks about the erasing <laughs> involved. But the point is, 
that fundamental idea is important. People who love to punish, Donald Trump is one of them, people who love to punish tend to do bad things. It tends to get a little out of hand. So I want to leave you with that thought on the super long sign-off on this jumbo episode after we missed a week. And uh, I hope to see you all next week. Um, David, go tend to your needs. Thank you, Charles. And uh, I, that, that was a beautiful line. And it goes again to you know, one of the points that we try to get to, which is let's take things as we find them. Let's attempt to be charitable as we engage in the process of interpreting what is in front of us. Um, let's not, you know, to the best of our abilities, let's not assume the worst. Let's aim for understanding things, you know, in a, in a more positive way. And, you know, Nietzsche as the latest example of that, that there are lots of things that you could take in a, in a very bad direction. Um, but if you attempt to take the words in a more positive direction, you can drive some very valuable uh, truths and, and goals for living a, a good life. And that's you know, a, a perfect example where you should distrust those who, who seek to exercise power to harm other people. Absolutely. David, have a great week. Thanks. You listening. too. Have Until a great week. Bye-bye.